Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Roe to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to roco snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. closer to our goal every week. Your reviews continue to amaze us, and we learn from your feedback as well. So thank you for taking the time to share. This episode is brought to you by Twinkle Lights. Tonight, we'll be reading Balsam Fur, a snoozecast original. Experience tromping through an evergreen tree farm to pick the perfect tree bouncing down a gently sloping path. Orderly rows of stout pines are all around. The sound of heavy boots stepping purposefully through deep, wet snow and the weak crunch of sneakers following in those footprints fill the brisk air. Altogether, there are eight people walking down an old cart path Beneath the snow, there are deep grooves in the earth. During the muddy spring, 
The never quite long enough summer and the busy fall when leaves litter the green fields. A tractor putters up and down the path twice each day, pulling a wagon laden with hay. Its destination is the farm's farthest field where its herd of cattle grazes. Sometimes the wagon is loaded with a variety of tools. These are used to tend to wood slatted gates as well as modern ones that have been tempered with steel. Even though the modern gates are, by any reasonable measure, simpler to repair and sturdier than their antique cousins, both are equally adept at keeping cattle in and unwanted critters out of the fields. And so, despite the extra work required to replace the wooden slats every few years, farmhands still swing open the ancient gates, allowing easy passage for cattle, tractors, and people. The march down the snowy path ends in front of one of these gates, which is unexpectedly locked. Beyond the wall, there are many rows of pine trees. This farm cultivates three different varieties, balsam firs, Douglas firs, and Scots pine, each species possessing its own particular charms. Balsam firs, Douglas firs, and Scots pine are all growing in this field. Each has its own subtle scent, but the fragrance of the balsam fir, which is slightly bracing with sweet and woody notes, beckons strongest. Flat, deep green needles sprout from the balsam fir's branches. Its needles are only a bit shorter and stiffer than those found on the Douglas fir. Those vibrant green needles are soft and full, which give the trees a slightly plump appearance. Of the different types, Scott's pine is the rarest on the tree farm. To be sure, the Scott's pine has a small yet vocal fandom. A tree has not yet been bred which sheds fewer needles after being cut than the Scots pine. Its sturdy branches reach upward, ready to support all manner of decoration. It is far superior by that pair of arboreal metrics, but the Scots pine has one nearly irredeemable flaw. The needles covering its branches are far far sharper than those of balsam and Douglas firs. Grasping the trunk of one of the friendlier firs with an ungloved hand is possible. And though it's not impossible to reach for a Scots pine in the same manner, it is painfully unwise. Tied atop each of the trees for sale are cloth ribbons Red ones mark the balsam firs. Blue ones hang from the top branches of the Douglas firs. White ribbons flutter over the elusive Scots pines.
near the gate, the pair of red mittens releases the metal cart, leaving it at rest in the snow. A wall borders both sides of the gate. The group climbs over the barrier, one by one. During the scramble, a red bow saw carefully passes from one gloved hand to another over the cold stones. Once all are over the wall, the group fans out into the field of trees, leaving behind footprints in the previously undisturbed snow. After five minutes, many sets of meandering tracks have appeared. The paths weave in and out of the rows of trees and encircle the more appealing pines. Nearly every tree in the field was thoughtfully evaluated on the following criteria. Size, shape, and sharpness. A brief and barehanded encounter with one of the few Scots pines swiftly eliminated it as a viable choice. After the incident, only those trees growing beneath the plentiful red and blue ribbons were inspected. One of the trees elicits a cry of surprise. The group gravitates toward the sound, which was uttered upon seeing a balsam fir. It is too wide on the bottom, I'll agree, but its unusually thick branches give it a cheerful robustness. There's something else, though. The fullness of the branches also had the curious effect of creating an inviting darkness in the center of the tree, making it appear slightly out of place. Perhaps the tree longed for the corner of a snug home where its silvery needles would reflect the orange glow of firelight. The saw flashes in the sun as a young woman accepts the surprisingly light blade. Her hands are kept warm inside the pair of red mittens, which now grip the saw. She crouches down near the tree's lower branches and sets the teeth against bark. As the blade slides back and forth and back and forth, sawdust falls and skitters across the snow as the saw cuts deeper and deeper. A cheer sounds when the task is done. The tree had fallen slowly and then bounced, buoyed by its own numerous branches, before coming to a rest on the ground. Standing now, the young woman smiles as she rests her right elbow against her side. In her hand, the saw is held upright. A picture is taken for the occasion. Now the work begins. Two hands, each belonging to a different person, reach down and grip a pair of thick branches near the tree's base. Once hoisted, it is then pulled through the field. The needles leave a trail of scratched snow in their wake. Upon reaching the wall, it's lifted over into the waiting hands of those who had already hopped to the other side. 
After passing over the granite boundary, the tree is placed in the steel cart. The red mittens once again grip the metal handle, this time joined by a pair of black leather gloves and two thin cotton gloves, bright blue. The walk back up the hill is brisk. Winter sunsets are brief in these fields as light refuses to linger in the thin, cold air. The scent of wood smoke grows stronger as the walkers near a merry scene unfolding at the top of the hill. There, farmhands matter-of-factly fasten trees to cars parked in a semicircular drive located just in front of the farmhouse. Balls of green twine unravel as they fly back and forth over car hoods and trunks, growing smaller with each pass. A brief scritch is heard moments before each tree is finally secured, the sound of a blade severing a scratchy twine. Arriving now at the lot, the group parts way for the time being. Some head beneath a tent where nine felled trees lean against a rough-hewn rack of timber. The trees are lit well by four bulbs hung, one in each corner of the tent. An orange cord powers the lights, which are protected by bars attached to a solid sheet of metal behind their bulbs. A more festive set of lights, strung from each of its four corners, hangs lazily outside of the tent. Others make their way to a set of cars parked near the farmhouse. A set of keys are produced from the deep pocket of a wool winter jacket. With the press of a button, the car doors are unlocked, and soon both engines are running. Water droplets fall arrhythmically out of the exhausts as fumes rise. The three pulling the tree and cart up the snowy path rest near a contraption designed to shake away loose needles. The tree is removed from the cart and secured in the center of the machine. A large black button, once pressed, sends the tree into a jittery dance. Needles flutter down in an ever-widening circle of green around the metal tree shaker. A red button is pressed, and the lot at the top of the hill is quiet again. The tree is then carried across the lot to the still cold cars. A grunt signals the tree's ascent. It lands with a thud on the roof. Green twine flies back and forth over the hood and trunk, growing smaller and smaller with each pass. Pine sap eases out of the freshly cut timber. Drops of the light amber liquid, no larger than a sesame seed, drip at a glacially slow pace onto the windshield. Once secured, the tree is given a strong tug as a final safety check. Satisfied with the job, a farmhand snips the twine with a pocket knife, accepts a tip for a job well done, and walks away in search of another tree 
in need of transport. The group reunites inside a shack next to the tent, framed by a large, thick plastic window on the structure's single door. A wood stove is seen inside. Its heavy iron legs rest on an earthen floor while it warms the small space. The shack's thin walls and aluminum door aren't well suited for keeping the cold at bay. Both are ineffective against the Arctic air. Heat has an array of escape routes out of the shack, including a multitude of pencil-thin cracks in the walls that run from the floor to the ceiling. Located roughly eight inches apart, the spaces mark the point where the pine boards that make up the structure's walls nearly meet. Never intended as a permanent addition to the hilltop neighborhood, the shack was built hastily one summer many years ago. Working alongside one another, neighbors shivered through a raw march, fought muddy fields in April, and finally rested in May after clearing land on the property's outskirts. At the end of the job, oaks, maples, and birches, stripped of their branches, lay stacked throughout the new fields. Straining side by side, teams of horses pulled carts heavy with timber up the hill. Larger carts, pulled by larger horses, arrived daily for seven consecutive days to ferry the logs from the hilltop to nearby sawmills. Some of the timber was sent further away. Its destination, a seaside city where the logs were loaded into the holds of ships headed south to distant customers. The following spring, in freshly tilled fields, hay seeds were planted, driven into the soil by horse-powered plows. In summer, the fields were thick and green with the tall grass. By fall, the grass lay bundled in scattered bales. During winter, a handful of bales were stored in the small shack at the top of the hill. Inside, air, pleasantly warmed by well-fed flames, drifts away from the wood stove, circulating through the center of the structure, before dissipating through cracks in the walls. The warming station is sparsely furnished. Three folding chairs sit in one corner. The center chair directly faces the wood stove, while its two companions are slightly angled inward in such a way that occupants can't help but be drawn into a conversation. On the front wall, immediately to the right of the dented aluminum door, there is a wide wooden counter made of oak. On top of the counter, there are a few items of note. At the end of the counter, there is a large lock box holding cash from the day's sales. In the center of the counter, there is a stack of paper cups turned upside down 
set next to a carafe. Hot chocolate pours from the stainless steel container into one of the paper cups, cradled by the red mittens. The hot chocolate is savored, and only when it's gone does the group exit the shack and starts the brief walk back to the cars waiting in the semi-circular lot. The vehicles will soon be pulling out onto the seldom-used byway adjacent the tree farm. Known as Wine Road, it ends, or begins, as some like to think, in the village's sparse center where it joins Hardwick Lane. Four buildings are clustered around a T-shaped intersection. A church capped with a bell tower that still rings out anchors the tiny neighborhood near where the roads meet. The farmhouse sits on the other side of the street. Two other buildings can be seen across the road, and within close view of the other buildings is this rural neighborhood. The larger of the pair, a two-story brick home carrying black shutters, had once been the village's school. Etched in a stone archway above the front door is the year it was built, 1883. The neighboring home was built 50 years later, giving the quiet corner a welcome symmetry. Passengers are kept warm inside the cold cars beneath heavy coats colorful scarves and thick hats. After the frost coating on the windshield melts, the cars shift into drive and leave the lot. The passengers remove their heavy coats, colorful scarves, and thick hats to settle in for what will be a long, uneventful drive through the darkening fields and forests of the surrounding countryside. The car pulls onto Wine Road, turning right, away from the T-shaped intersection and down the hill. The tree farm passes by outside the passenger side windows. Rows upon rows of balsam firs, Douglas firs, and Scots pine move by rapidly in a quick succession of green and white. The effect is similar to that of watching a film reel, only if it were slowed down to half its normal run speed. Five hundred yards away from the tree's farm's lot, Wine Road leaves the open countryside and enters a deep wood. Beneath the bare canopy, the car's headlights put fleeting spotlights on the snow, piled high on the sides of the road as it snakes left and right through the thick wood while simultaneously rising and falling over the many small hills of the rolling landscape. Eventually, Wine Road exits the wood and again is surrounded by open space. Hay-filled in the summer months, 
The fields at this end of the town are resting beneath a blanket of snow. The sun has long since passed beneath the horizon, yet among the open fields, it's unnaturally bright for this time of evening. Hanging high overhead, the moon reflects the unseen sun's light onto the snowy fields where the snow scatters the pale beams further. The light, muted as it is, brilliantly illuminates the landscape. Inside the car, the passengers would have found it bright enough to read by the moonlight had they thought to bring books for the trip. Up ahead, a stop sign brings the car to a halt at the intersection where Wine Road ends. The juncture leads to a wider, better maintained, widely traveled highway. The cars pass homes set far back from the highway, outlined with strings of bright white bulbs and occasionally twinkling lights of blue, yellow, green, orange, red, and gold. As the tree farm grows more and more distant with each passing mile, the landscape changes again. More homes and fewer fields pass by the cars now. Snowbanks piled high on both sides of the road are broken intermittently by icy, darkened streets running perpendicular to the main highway. A sign appears on the side of the road. It's green with white letters. The number 25 is painted on the sign along with the letters M, P, and H. A village comes into view. The sidewalks are wide and lined with street lamps. Wreaths festooned with large red bows are tied to the lamps. Twinkling lights have been suspended up and down the avenue. They sway back and forth very gently in the icy breeze. Two passengers are missing this arrival. Both have fallen soundly asleep in the back seat. Their heads rest on folded scarves pressed against window panes. A light snow begins to fall. Flakes from the unexpected squall dance in the beams that are lighting the way forward. They fly swiftly out of the dark night. These points of light swirling all around become a field of stars. The steady hum of the radiator, the slow pace of the car, and the dreamy scene unfolding in front of the windshield all lull the third passenger into a deep, restful sleep. The ride is almost over. The village has faded from view, and the road is again 
passing through a dark wood. The snow has stopped, and the night is still. Stars are overhead, shining brighter than usual in the winter air. They twinkle softly in a cold, quiet hour beyond midnight.